Welcome back to the podcast, Finding My Fit. I'm Athena, your host, and I hope you're ready for another amazing episode. Finding My Fit is your go-to podcast for health, fitness, self-love, and eating disorder recovery. I'm here to bring you up-to-date, scientifically researched evidence, all about health, fitness, and nutrition, as well as helping you learn to love yourself and spreading positivity. If you're enjoying my podcast, I would love for you to leave me a five-star review over on iTunes. If you're interested in health, fitness, or eating disorder recovery coaching, please head over to my website, finding-my-fit.com. Let's get on into the episode. Today is going to be all about meal timing and meal frequency when it comes to health and disease. So it's quite known that exercise and a good diet can aid towards preventing things like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, a bunch of different things. And there are many claims about the differences between meal timings and meal frequency and which one is the best when it comes to preventing illness. But which one actually is the best? Although there are many obvious factors that influence a health state, there are many studies pointing to the fact that the time and the frequency of meals have significant impacts. I'm going to talk a little bit about intermittent fasting in this episode, but I am also going to do a completely separate episode on intermittent fasting. So keep your eyes out for that, or I guess keep your ears out for that. Evolutionarily, mammals ate very intermittently. Back in the day when, you know, we were hunting and gathering things and we were hunting our own food and animals before the Industrial Revolution, humans ate probably once a day, if not less. So the ability to survive for extended periods of time without food was key to survival. This is why our bodies have adapted to have stores of energy, which we store in the form of glycogen and fat. Ancient Romans thought that eating more than once a day was unhealthy and they only ate at 4pm each day. Nowadays, food is readily available and that's alongside a very sedentary lifestyle is partly the reason that the obesity pandemic is happening. Most jobs nowadays involve sitting in a chair and most of us get public transport or the car everywhere we go. So there's very little reason for us to be running or moving or walking anywhere nowadays. You can literally call an Uber that comes right outside your door and you can be dropped right outside wherever it is you want to go. So that requires about four steps in total, which is nothing. There's evidence linking higher meal frequency, so that is more than six meals a day, compared to a lower meal frequency, which is one to two meals a day, with an increased risk of disease, lower insulin sensitivity, higher low density lipoproteins and lower high density lipoproteins so those are just cholesterols also increased inflammation changes in the gut microbiome and circadian rhythm and all of these do take into account the type and the amount of food as well as the meal timings and the caloric content of the food So we'll talk a little bit about the circadian rhythm. So the circadian rhythm has natural oscillations in hormones, behavior, and metabolism over 24 hours. Our circadian rhythm has evolved to change according to the daylight and the nighttime. So the light and the dark, because ultimately the food availability and the hunting abilities would differ greatly depending on whether it was light or dark. When it was light, 
food might be available because we were able to hunt things down when it's dark that's time to rest and digest we aren't going out hunting when it's pitch black so that is why we have evolved to go with this natural circadian rhythm gene studies show that more than 10 percent of our genes exhibit circadian oscillation and their transcription changes which in turn affects the neuroendocrine system the signaling pathways the metabolic pathways in our body so ultimately what i'm saying there is our genes respond to the circadian rhythm just like our hormones and the rest of our bodies do and this is to ensure that the genes are maximally functioning and maximally expressed at the right times so a really simplistic example would be the genes that may help us stay awake or the genes that might help us run faster not that there is a particular gene for that but as a very very simplified simplistic example the genes that might help us run faster would be turned on during the daylight hours because that is when we're likely to be running after an animal the circadian rhythm is controlled by something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus which is in the hypothalamus of the brain and it responds to light that enters the retina and controls our sleep weight cycle our temperature our energy and metabolism hormone release and that includes hunger hormones which relates to what i'm talking about today whilst the central clock so the suprachiasmatic nucleus dictates our food intake our energy expenditure and our insulin sensitivity there are peripheral or tissue clocks that also carry out additional kind of circadian control there is a peripheral clock in the gut and that regulates glucose absorption there's peripheral clocks in adipose or fat tissue and in the liver that regulate insulin tissue sensitivity and there's another peripheral clock which is in the pancreas which regulates insulin secretion and consuming out of normal quote-unquote normal eating hours can disrupt the central as well as all of these peripheral clocks so that is if you're eating at 2 a.m which is not a natural time really for humans to be consuming food the circadian rhythm is regulated by oscillations in certain proteins in our bodies one of them is called clock and the other one is called bmal1 or bmal1 heterodimerize and they initiate transcription of certain genes in our body that produce proteins that accumulate in our cells and help to generate this 24-hour oscillation 80 percent of all of the protein coding genes in our bodies will exhibit a certain circadian rhythm in their expression and this has been shown in experimental models and in humans that both feeding and fasting will change the way that these proteins and these genes are expressed and therefore changes their circadian rhythm time restricted feeding seems to improve the circadian oscillations of these key metabolic regulator genes for example some of these genes are camp response element binding protein you've got mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR and you've also got ampk activated protein kinase which is ampk and all of these are actually very closely related to longevity and lifespan ghrelin is a fast acting orexigenic hormone that is it makes us eat more it makes us more hungry and its concentrations increase preprandially so before we eat and especially at night 
Correspondingly, hunger has its intrinsic circadian peak in the evenings, which promotes this tendency for us to eat larger meals later in the day. So we always, well, we generally have a larger dinner than we do a lunch. However, eating a large breakfast can reduce our hunger and cravings, especially the cravings for sweets and fats, as well as postprandial ghrelin concentration. So eating a larger breakfast may counteract this increased hunger in the evenings, which is kind of obvious when you think about it. It's also been shown that reduced meal frequency and intermittent fasting can prevent the development of obesity and it's associated with less oxidative damage to our cells as well as a higher stress resistance. And this is through production of certain proteins called chaperones. Examples are heat shock proteins and growth factors. An example is BDNF, which is in our brains and our neurons. Their action is probably through improving signaling between fat cells and therefore causing less fat deposits to be put down. Having regular breakfast has also been shown to reduce our blood lipid or our blood cholesterol levels and improve the sensitivity that our cells have to insulin and their glucose tolerance. So this is kind of like a prevention mechanism for development of diabetes. It's also evident that an increase in physical activity thermogenesis increases in fat cell insulin sensitivity and a more stable plasma glucose concentration is found during the day as a result of daily breakfast consumption. So basically eating a regular breakfast helps to control a bunch of different shit within your blood and keep them within normal levels. Due to modern day artificial lighting, industrialization and shift work, so those of us who work during the night or later evenings, we are exposed to prolonged hours of light and this results in an increase in food consumption and erratic eating patterns and that is because it's throwing off our circadian rhythm, our natural sleep-wake, light-dark cycle. Nearly 10% of industry employees work night shifts, regular or irregular, and those who eat later at night, for example shift workers, have a decreased energy expenditure, a decreased resting metabolic rate, and therefore a higher risk of type 2 diabetes, obesity and cardiovascular disease, and that is even after adjustments for people's age, people's sex and people's physical activity. However, there was another study I read that concluded that there were no changes in food intake or in energy expenditure with shift workers. So I do want to reiterate that I've read quite a lot of different studies on this and most of them seem to agree that shift work can cause these unwanted changes, but there were a few that found no changes with regards to working hours. Studies do show that those eating a higher calorie breakfast compared to a dinner can have an increase in weight loss and chronic circadian disruption is linked to an increased risk of disease and these extended illuminated hours that we're exposed to because of things like our laptops, artificial lighting, working late at night, all of these are increasing our risk to developing metabolic diseases and things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. In fly studies, a change to nighttime feeding actually affected their fat metabolism and also their fecundity. Fecundity is just like a word that they use for fly reproductive abilities, so kind of like fly fertility. In humans, 12-hour shifts of sleep-wake and fasting feeding cycles compared to a central circadian system, as in working nighttime and being asleep during the day. 
led to reduced glucose tolerance and increase in blood pressure decreased satiety and decreased leptin leptin is the hunger hormone that tells us that we are full so if we have less leptin we don't feel as full therefore we eat more and in rodents, mutations in certain genes that control our circadian rhythm, our central clock, affected certain phosphorylation sites on certain genes, which made the mice consume more food and predisposed them to metabolic disorders. So as you can see, a lot of people have studied many different types of animals. We've got flies, we've got rodents, we've got rats, we've got humans. Uh, wait, I just said rodents and rats. I think they're the same thing, aren't they? But anyway... You know, we've studied a lot of different things, a lot of different people, and a lot of them seem to conclude these results. So I'm going to super quickly go over intermittent fasting because, like I said, I'm going to do a whole episode on this, so we're not going to go too much into detail. But intermittent fasting, I'm going to call it IF for short. IF causes decreased levels of insulin and decreased leptin which can lead to an increase in insulin and leptin sensitivity, reduced body fat overall, increased ketone levels, decreased resting heart rate and blood pressure, reduced inflammation, increased resistance to stress in the brain and the heart tissues, and even a decreased risk of diabetes development. IF can delay the onset and the slow the progression of neuronal dysfunction and neurodegenerative disorders, and that was found in animal models. By neurodisorders, I mean Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's disease. Animal lifespans were extended by dietary energy restriction, and they may even reverse disease processes. And studies show that intermittent fasting can protect neurons against oxidative, metabolic, and proteotoxic stress. Again, this was found in animal studies. In particular, all of these types of stress are found in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients. And additionally, IF can also protect the heart against ischemic damage, again, found in animal models um, of myocardial infarction. So basically animals who had heart attacks. So that is all I'm going to say on IF because, like I said, don't want to repeat myself in the IF episode. So timings and frequency of meals. Studies show that there is a circadian rhythm in certain changes to our proteins within our bodies, in particular protein oxidation. So the urea concentration was found to be highest between 8am and 11am and lowest between 11pm and 2am in human studies. And carbohydrate oxidation was highest in the morning and fat oxidation, so fat breakdown, was highest in the evenings. Even after adjustments for total energy intake, eating most of your daily energy at certain times is associated with certain increases in risk of weight gain and obesity. A study showed that those who ate more than 33% of their daily intake in the evenings were two times more likely to be overweight and those who ate before 3pm were more successful with weight loss. And this might be because satiation, so that, that feeling of being full, continues through to dinner if you eat at lunchtime but if you eat and get really full at an evening meal that satiation that hunger that full feeling probably won't carry on to the next day so even though you've eaten the same amount you're still going to feel probably pretty hungry when you wake up in the morning if that makes sense 
Studies show that fasting 10 to 12 hours reduces the prevalence of abdominal obesity in both males and females and can reduce levels of triglycerides, so kind of fats and cholesterols, in men compared to a 16-hour fast. A Korean study showed that there was a inverse association with metabolic syndrome and morning eating. So basically those who ate in the mornings were less likely to develop metabolic syndrome or diabetes. Those who ate a regular breakfast had a slower weight gain and reduced blood cholesterols and reduced blood pressure. And nighttime eaters were found to have an increased risk of developing obesity and metabolic syndrome. So the times and the frequencies that we eat can also affect a process called autophagy, which is basically cell death. And this is necessary for our bodies to clear out old cells that we don't want. It's very closely linked to longevity and lifespan and overall health. Energy levels throughout the day affect autophagy. I mentioned before something called mammalian target of rapamycin, mTOR. This is just a protein that negatively regulates or inhibits autophagy. Fasting will inhibit mTOR and therefore stimulate autophagy. So when we fast, it's telling our bodies to get rid of these old cells that we don't need anymore. And they get recycled when there is very little energy available, allowing our body to make new cells, even in the absence of food. It's mainly animal models that are showing that energy restriction or lower meal frequency can increase autophagy and therefore reduce, um, you know, all these dead cells, all these toxins from building up in our bodies. And a buildup of these toxins is closely linked to a lot of diseases. Example, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. I'm going to keep going back to these. They are very closely linked to a buildup of toxic proteins within the brain. So if fasting can help to remove these toxins, fasting therefore may help to prevent or slow the progression of these diseases. Timings of meals in relation to the circadian rhythm can also affect autophagy. Studies have shown changes in blood lipids when people eat larger, less frequent meals. And the changes are not good ones. So if we eat massive amounts of food, but very little, it can throw off our blood lipid levels. And often infrequent meal pattern is associated with an irregular approach to eating. And this can cause weight gain. So if you're very erratic with your food, you know, one day you're eating fucking loads, loads of little snacks and eating very frequently. And then next you're eating barely anything, but you have one massive meal. It's going to throw the body into a bit of a kind of frantic state. It's thinking, what what is this eating pattern? Tomorrow, am I going to get lots of snacks? Or am I going to have one big meal again? It doesn't really know. And it kind of confuses the body a little bit, which can change our hunger hormones. It can change our circadian rhythm, our met- metabolic rate. And ultimately, it just leads to all of this metabolic disturbance that can possibly increase our risk of developing metabolic syndrome, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. The gut microbiome, which again, I'm going to do an episode all about that because it's very interesting, but the gut microbiome also shows oscillations when it comes to circadian rhythm. And if the gut microbiome is depleted alongside a disruption to our central circadian clock, this can lead to reduced energy expenditure. Circadian disruption due to things like transmeridian traveling, jet lag, or even late night eating or shift work can negatively impact the 
abundance of certain bacterial species within our gut, within our microbiome, as well as in our salivary microbiome. Changes in certain bacterial species within our guts can predispose us to increased risk of weight gain and other disorders. You know, our gut microbiome has been linked to a lot of different diseases, even things like Alzheimer's and diabetes. So if we are changing our meal frequency and therefore changing our gut microbiota, it may affect our risk of developing all of these disorders. Studies in mice show that a bacterial species called Firmicutes increase immediately after a meal and there is also more beneficial bacteria called bacteriodetes and proteobacteria that are only able to bloom and grow during periods of fasting. There is a 20% increase in firmicutes and a decrease in bacteroids when we have an increase in energy usage in our body. So this can lead to us basically gaining weight. Basically, if we are eating more frequently, we're therefore going to increase our firmicute bacteria within our gut. And this can lead to us using more energy of the food that we take in, which therefore means that we're technically eating more calories each day or we're absorbing more calories each day, which can lead to weight gain. The microbiota and food timings are closely related. Intestinal cells have or follow the circadian rhythm and this influences our daily glucocorticoid production, which is controlled by the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So basically our hypothalamus, our pituitary glands and our adrenal glands. And this rhythm is influenced by our gut microbiota. And the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis controls many of our hormones, therefore can lead to massive changes in our mood, in our hunger, in metabolism, in everything. So alternate day fasting stimulates production of many different neuroprotective proteins, including enzymes that remove oxidative species that damage our cells, including heat shock proteins, like I mentioned before, and even things called trophic factors that can promote the survival and the formation of new neurons and can strengthen the connections within our brains. Data shows that alternate day fasting basically causes like a, a mild stress response in our cells. Because we because they have a lack of food, they kind of go into this, this response thinking, oh no, something's wrong because we don't have any energy. And this, this very small stress response is actually beneficial for us. Obviously, too much stress is not good for us, is not good for ourselves. But having a very small amount of stress has actually been shown to be beneficial because it helps the cell kind of stay on top of things. Humans switching from eating three full meals a day to alternate day fasting have a significant change in their metabolism and these are beneficial changes. So this includes an increase in insulin sensitivity, a decrease in circulating insulin and leptin levels, utilization of fatty acids, an increase in ketones, which are beneficial for cells with high energy demand, such as neurons in the brain. And in mice, all of these benefits that I just mentioned were shown even when the mice did not lose weight. So these beneficial changes, I'm talking about these independent of any weight changes. 
because of course alternate day fasting may help you lose weight as well but I'm talking more about the internal benefits that we're getting as opposed to the fat loss. Alternate day fasting in humans can also prevent age-related decline in our mitochondria within our muscle cells and can also induce even new mitochondria to be made. Mitochondria ultimately are found within our cells and they are the energy producing parts of our cells. Alternate day fasting can also increase BDNF, which is a kind of miracle grow for our neurons. It protects them, it helps our brains make more connections and produce more neurons and enhances our neuronal activity. And finally, I just want to touch on inflammation. So all major diseases, literally so fucking many diseases, including diabetes, neuronal disorders, arthritis, cardiovascular disease, and even cancers, asthma, acne, IBS, all of these are associated with chronic inflammation due to an increase in production of things called pro-inflammatory cytokines. Obese women who change their diet from many small meals a day to alternate day fasting had a significant reduction in their circulating levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So they basically had a reduced inflammation when they switched from regular everyday meals to alternate day fasting. Asthma patients, when they had two months of alternate day fasting, they also had reduced pro-inflammatory cytokines and reduced oxidative stress within their bodies. And this improved their asthma symptoms and even helped airway resistance. There are multiple studies to show that fasting can lessen symptoms in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which is ultimately caused by inflammation. And there's data from animal studies to show that the pathogenesis or the kind of symptoms of autoimmune disorders may also be counteracted by alternate day fasting. And these disorders include multiple sclerosis, IBS, lupus, and type 1 diabetes. And finally, in mouse models of stroke, alternate day fasting suppressed these pro-inflammatory cytokines in the cerebral cortex and striatum of the brains. And that was associated with an improved kind of cognitive functional outcome after the stroke, basically. So it helped it helped post-stroke to kind of get the brain functioning. Okay, so that was a very full-on episode. A lot of information in this episode, but I hope it was interesting. If you'd enjoyed this, please go and leave me a review on iTunes. Ideally five stars, but I'll take anything four stars or above, okay? So if you fancy leaving me four or five stars, I'd really appreciate that. If you're interested in online coaching, hit me up over on Instagram. My username is Athena Crilly. Or there is a podcast Instagram, which is Finding My Fit Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you learned something new and I'll see you guys in the next one.